Today on Ag News Daily. What I find impressive when I share the information, not only the scope of our production platform is, you know, depending upon who you talk to, there's some three or four hundred different specialty crops. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Ag News Daily Podcast. This is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts speaking, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, how, do you, how are you doing today? I am hot once again, and not yeah. in the physical sense, not like, oh my gosh, he's so hot, like, uh-huh. I need to invest more in gold bond hot, yeah. sticky. Agreed, for sure. And we're also joined by <laughs> Hannah Pagel. Hannah, how are you today? I am doing great. You know, I'm in the air conditioning, so I'm nice and cool, and I'm not sticky or anything like that, so it's doing good. Well, guys, we have a really great interview coming up, so I want to go ahead and get into the news. And I know big news off the top here. We had some positive reflections in the markets today as the WASD, or the World Supply and Demand, reports came out. And, Mike, do you have those numbers sitting in front of you? I do. And, yeah, it was nice to see green on the screen pretty well across the board. We'll get to the markets in just a little bit. But these were the numbers that USDA came out with today. When we take a look at the yield for corn, they were unchanged from their uh, June report at 174. Soybeans also unchanged at 48.5 bushels per acre. For total production, the USDA raised corn production uh, slightly, still right within analyst expectations, literally right on the button. They say total Corn production in the U.S. will be 14.23 billion bushels. Soybeans increased production again, still right in line with analyst expectations. Bean production at 4.31 billion bushels. Now, the kind of semi-surprising news was in the grain carryout for the 17-18 marketing season. This was the crop that was grown last year. On the corn side, we're going to have just over 2 billion bushels carryout left at the end of the year. The USDA dropped that. Just about 80 million bushels. In soybeans, this was the big surprise. USDA dropped the soybean carryout from 505 million bushels to 465 million bushels. They brought that down based on the strengths of summertime exports that we have seen going to places that aren't traditionally buyers. Uh, Mexico, Thailand, other places in Southeast Asia have been snapping up beans at these cheap prices. Now, It does get a little more bearish when we look out longer term. So the beans that are growing in the field right now, those are the 18-19 crop season. USDA projects the carryout for next year in corn at 1.552 billion bushels, just about 200 million bushels less than the trade estimates, so that's definitely bullish. The bearish news is in soybeans. Next year's grain carryout for soybeans, USDA raised 200 million bushels from 385 to 580 because they're anticipating that export demand is going to slow down with these trade and tariff disputes that are happening around the world. So those were the big headline numbers. Certainly the trade jumped out at that 465 number in soybeans. They jumped at that corn carryout coming down. Demand is good at these cheaper prices, and that helped support the markets today. In fact, we've got a comment from uh, one of our analysts and a person we are proud to be a sponsor with, and that is Ted Seifred, was interviewed by Reuters, and he said USDA, when we look at that 580 million bushel carryout for beans next year, he said, quote, they kind of ripped the Band-Aid off. Uh, it's an aggressive move upward from USDA, and that's Ted Seifred, and I think he's exactly right there, Delaney. 
I think so. And yeah, we had some positive reflections today. You talked a little bit there about tariffs, and I wanted to just jump into some tariff-related news. Um, We have some news coming from Congress. The Senate has voted in favor of a non-binding measure, which basically means they have the power to take a vote if President Trump tries to put in more tariffs, basically. They can levy tariffs before um, the president can sign them into active status, I guess we'll call it. And that is under Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. This doesn't mean that they will uh, veto um, any future tariffs, but now they have the power to, to come back in and say yes or no. We don't think these tariffs should go into effect. So All is right. this like a way for the Senate to limit the power of the president? Yes. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. So so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see because I know a lot of senators are up for re-election here come fall. So uh, especially those Republican senators, it'll be interesting to see if they vote with party lines and support President Trump or if they do go ahead and stand up and say, you know, we don't think the tariffs should go into effect. Or if they just say, hey, we think Congress should have some oversight Absolutely. when we're looking at, you know, and that's yeah. what kind of this vote is. But yep. uh, Hannah, what do you have for news today? Well, the first one I want to touch on is the EPA has decided to scrap their plan to make the larger oil refineries pick up what the smaller refineries were unable to meet with the biofuel standard. Did you guys see this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the RFS, that's or the the waivers, those that demands just gone, right? Well, yeah, it just looks like the EPA just decided to be like, okay, like apparently Reuters um, reported that they put this plan in place because of what happened with the EPA issuing those hardship waivers to the smaller refineries, but then they scrapped the plan because of protests from the refinery industry. So it just seems to be going back and forth and I guess just not going to see any any movement in this area for a while. Yeah, that's the way it sounds. It sounds like EPA, even with uh, Scott Pruitt gone, they're still saying, look, these ref- these exemptions were issued. That's that. It's in the past. Now we're going to go ahead and look to the future and not roll those uh, those barrels or those uh, gallons back into demand. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I've got a little piece of news here, and I don't think this will be too surprising for a lot of our listeners. Dicamba is, again, a hot topic. Its re-registration is coming up this fall of the new uh, Extendamax and Genius, some of the new uh, uh, formulations. And Monsanto has been out. They've been inspecting Dicamba complaints. And what they have found is that none of the Dicamba-related complaints are due to volatility of Extendamax. They're all due to mm. application error and uh, yep. you know, failure to follow the label, which I know we've got a few listeners who are going to object to this, and that certainly does sound a little fishy. You know, Monsanto, I mean, the product manufacturer is out there saying, no, we don't know what's going on. They must have used it wrong. But... Um, yeah, so this dicamba issue going to be a hot topic again as we come into the fall. It certainly will, and I have some, we'll call it herbicide-related news. Uh, the a federal judge or the federal judge that's presiding over the Monsanto Roundup Ready case has decided or ruled that the case will go in front of a grand jury to see if they rule um, 
that it caused cancer for those folks in California. Yeah, and you know, I was reading up on that too, Delaney, and I was kind of, I kind of chuckled to myself a little bit when I was reading what the judge said, because apparently the judge called the plaintiff's quote-unquote expert opinions that they were shaky, um, and that they entirely excluded the opinions of two scientists, which Monsanto had, but he said that it was just enough reasonable enough evidence to conclude that glyphosate causes cancer, but I don't know. I found that to be very interesting that he still said, oh, it's a shaky opinion, but we're going to let it go through. So, mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Well, actually, speaking of lawsuits, Hannah, there's another interesting lawsuit, and this one's going to be pretty controversial, I have a feeling. So a group of black soybean farmers or African-American soybean farmers from the south, from Tennessee and Mississippi, have filed a lawsuit accusing Stein seeds of selling them seeds that were defective or uh, lower quality because of their race. So they were soybean seeds. They're soybean farmers down in around the Rome, Mississippi area. And then I'm not sure what area of Tennessee those folks were from. But they said that soybean yields yields were significantly lower than they usually are. And um, they're moving forward with a lawsuit against Stein seeds. Interesting. So I guess my question is, is like, how, how would they have like come together to be like, these are defective seeds, you know? Uh, yeah, you know, I I don't know. The article said that the farmers noticed, um, that the seeds, even when the seeds were planted in April and May of 2017, they were slow to germinate. Uh, they were consistently complaining about their crops. And the Mississippi State University Laboratory apparently tested them in December and showed that the seeds the farmers bought were dormant. So I'm not sure how the race card applies in there, um, other than maybe it was all black or African-American farmers that came together and said that it was a race. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. That will be interesting to see. We'll have to keep our eye on that one. But uh, I don't have any more news in terms of lawsuits or anything like that. But I did find a fun piece here. And Delaney, do you keep up to date with, you know, the latest food trends? Uh, I mean, kind of. I'm not big like avocado toast person, but sure. Well, okay, maybe you won't know this, but do you know what the latest food trend that is kind of taking over the food industry right now? I don't. No, I'm going to say no. Okay, so apparently a lot of chefs and different restaurants have been using, it's called, they dust their food with gold, essentially. Oh, It's edible gold, and they've been doing this with chicken wings to chocolate to, they've, like, dipped a Kit Kat bar into, like, this gold liquid stuff, and it comes out looking like a gold brick, essentially, and... You know, sushi places are adding the gold to their their like toppings to make it stand out more. But now, I, do you know Hannah who was really the first to do that sort of thing? Um, no, who Mike? Goldschlager. That's what I was just gonna guess. Yeah, <laughs> it is for those of our listeners who are good living, upright folks and don't hang out in seedy bars. Goldschlager is a schnapps, probably with flecks of gold in it. It's interesting, that's for sure. I think that's the I think that's the liquor that they use on Superbad. 
I think you're right. They've got a different name for it, but that's the stuff. Mm-hmm. I think so. Well, they showed a picture online here of chicken wings dipped in gold, and I, they don't even look edible. So I don't even know why I'd, like, want to eat that, but I guess that's just I don't know. A, Maybe it'll raise the price of uh, gold commodities. There you go. And speaking of commodities, should we get in today's closing markets? Let's do it. Yes, indeed. And our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. So give them a call, especially after a day like today. Their market strategists can help you put a plan in place. Give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, as I mentioned, we've got some green on the screen today. Taking a look at the corn market. The July contract was up five and a quarter at 336 and a half. December was up six cents to finish at 359 and a quarter. In soybeans, not up a lot, but it's a pleasant change over the recent big 20-cent moves to the downside. July old crop beans were up a quarter cent at 8.30 even. November, up a penny at 8.49 and a quarter. In Chicago, wheat, the July was up 12 and three quarters at 4.82 and a half. September, up 12 and three quarters as well to close at 4.84 and a half. Looking over on the livestock side in live cattle, the August contract up a dollar seventeen fifty, closed at one oh five oh two fifty. The October up a dollar thirty five to finish at one oh seven sixty. And with feeder cattle, the August contract up a dollar sixty two and a half at one fifty one oh two fifty. The September up a dollar fifty five at one fifty ninety seven fifty. And strength carried on into lean hogs. The July contract up seventeen and a half cents at seventy nine ninety five. The August up a dollar sixty two fifty. At 70, 42 and a half. And of course, a quick look at the dairy market. Wow, even strength in dairy. The July contract was up 10 cents today at 14.31, and the August up 30 cents to close at 14.95. Before we jump into our conversation with the Western Growers Association, let's hear a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. This week, we're talking to our friend Phil Long, the agronomy specialist up at Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, we're midway through the summer. Japanese beetles are making their presence felt. Bring us up to speed. What should growers be looking for to determine if the Japanese beetles are, are really a threat this time of year? Sure, Mike. That uh, The skeletonized leaves and the feeding on, uh, on soybean leaves tends to scare a lot of guys. And uh, you know, what they need to be looking for is uh, the percentage of defoliation. We're at that time when soybeans should be flowering. Um, they should be at that R1 growth stage. So R1 to R5, while they're in that seed fill and that early flowering time period, the damage is, is only 15%. That's the threshold you're looking for. Um, but, but remember, a lot of times people tend to overestimate that. Make sure you look at the new growth on the top of the plant, you know, and see if they're really diving into that. Or if it's just on the old growth, that's really important. After you get past that, once you get to about the R6 or the green bean stage or that amame stage, 25% is kind of what you're looking for there to, to, to make the choice on, a, on an insecticide spray. So just make sure they look at the leaves hard and, and, and really do some comparisons on percentages before you get too excited. Folks, Latham High Tech Seeds has incredible agronomic insight. They've got incredible seed products for your field. If you want to get involved with a great company, call 1-877-GO-LATHAM or visit the website at LathamSeeds.com. Well, we are talking to Dennis Donahue today, who is the lead of the Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology. Dennis, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. 
My pleasure, and good morning. Good morning. Dennis, tell us, what is the Western Growers Association? Can you give us a little bit of the background there? Well, the WGA is uh, one of the uh, specialty crop industries, uh, most important uh, trade groups. It's been around for some 93-plus years, uh, originating out of the Imperial Valley, and uh, it represents what we uh, refer to the uh, as the specialty crop industry, uh, which is are those essentially those crops that are unsubsidized. Its membership base is uh, uh, California, Arizona. Uh, recently added Colorado and the uh, New Mexico Chili Pepper Association. And the group's uh, production membership is responsible for 50 plus percent of North America's fresh fruits, vegetables, and nuts. And uh, uh, I'm uh, I used to be. Uh, in the, I've been an ag guy since uh, the late 1980s. I was a specialty vegetable grower, and uh, uh, and one of the things that I like to point out to people is that most of the uh, fresh producers and processors affiliated with the organization uh, are year-round players, and so in order to do that, uh, they're operating uh, in some 32 states and 30 countries. So it's a so it's a it's a pretty potent production platform, and a an awfully important part of uh, of uh, the specialty crop industry. And Dennis, give us a big picture of how this group started. <laughs> what was the goal behind creating Western Growers? Well, I, I you know, I think typically wherever you have uh, uh, a large uh, a large body of folks, uh, uh, you're, you're going to have interest in associations. And so Western Growers. Uh, does a number of things, you know, as a as a member for 30 plus years before I got involved with this opportunity. Uh, you know, Western Growers uh, does uh, advocacy work on behalf of uh, its membership uh, in Sacramento and Washington on, uh, uh, you know, their their numerous regulatory, technical, uh, just is- issues associated with the industry's interest. And then because of the size and scope of the group, it's uh, it's a really unique trade organization that it's able to offer a number of business services uh, to its members, you know, whether it's uh, insurance, uh, risk management, <laughs> products, that, that type of thing. So it's a really unique trade, trade group. That does sound really unique. And Dennis, we want to talk a little bit more about the technology and things that the group has to offer. But really quick, could you give us kind of a scope? Hannah and I are both here in the Midwest. Um, and, and I think a lot of the listeners are, too, used to growing corn and soybeans. What are some of those specialty crops that you guys are working with uh, growers-wise in that part of the country? Well, it's, uh, you know, we, uh, as you might imagine, in California, we've got, uh, uh, which is a uh, pretty uh, sizable piece of geography in its own right in Arizona and the, in the desert. Uh, uh, you know, we would be uh, thinking about uh, – you know what we call row crops: uh, the uh, uh, lettuce, romaine, the leaf lettuces. Uh, obviously, uh, you know huge nut production, so almonds, pistachios, walnuts, etc. Uh, what I what I find impressive when I share the information, not only the scope of our production platform is, you know, depending upon who you talk to, there's some three or four hundred different specialty crops. Uh, that our membership uh, is involved in in the produ- production of, but uh, you know, I, I'd essentially say the leafy greens, all the 
all the major fruit commodities, uh, strawberries, melons, table grapes, and then that's, you know, so the list kind of goes on and on. And then, uh, and then obviously, and we're more associated with, uh, uh, like I say, fruits, vegetables, and nuts, but, uh, you know, we have a number of, obviously California has a lot of other interests, uh, dairy, uh, that, that type of thing. But fundamentally, we're, we're fruits, vegetables, and nuts. And Dennis, since you do have like a wide variety of different produce items that your members grow, and you said that you're an advocacy group too, so what are some of the top topics that you are talking about with, that you're trying to advocate for for your members? Well, I, I, as you, as you noted when we got started, I'm uh, running the innovation center, so I can, you know, I'll just kind of put on another hat as a, as a member of WJ with, you know, with the company I, I used to run, uh, you know, we, we look to WA, WGA to, uh, get involved in a wide array of things, whether it's the farm bill, immigration issues, uh, um, you know, technical issues. You know, WGA is, is one of the leaders, uh, working with, uh, numerous, uh, and in your neck of the woods, you know, agriculture typically numerous associations, uh, routinely working with, uh, universities and governments on, uh, regulatory standards, technical issues, you know, because it's important that there be, uh, uh, as much commonality and predictability as, as possible, uh, so, so the uh, food supply and the whole food chain can run as efficiently as possible. So it's really a combination of, of advocacy, and then I think uh, kind of coordinating with all with all of the uh, uh, major groups that are involved in um, all things agricultural. Absolutely, yeah, that definitely makes sense, Dennis. Let's talk about technology now, because I know that's your area of expertise. Tell us a little bit about some of the technology side that Western Growers does, because I know you guys have a, a technology or an innovation center. Is that correct? We do. Yeah, it was really an unusual. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think a terrific move on the part of uh, Western Growers. You know, it's not a it's not something that's it, typically done by a by a trade group per se. But what uh, uh, a couple years ago the Western Growers Board uh, made made a decision that uh, uh, and and you know kind of alluding back to what I what I said earlier, it is it is not uncommon. Uh, for agriculture interests to work together around technical issues, regulatory issues, and and, and the specialty crop crowd, which you know, which we represent, a couple of years ago uh, under uh, Western Growers Board leadership and um, and and Irvine, where we're headquartered, uh, they decided that in order to uh, embrace the future and be more proactive, uh, that that the group needed to uh, Take a look uh, at technology and innovation, and see how they can kind of incorporate that into uh, their collective activities. And uh, and uh, you know, and agriculture is you know kind of an interesting game. We you know we know how to compete, but we also know how to cooperate. And and the determination was made that technology and innovation um, was something that there needed to be kind of some collective thinking and. Uh, um, Kind of preparation for the future. So, uh, one of the physical manifestations of that strategy 
was uh, Western Growers opened a uh, innovation center uh, in downtown in in downtown Salinas uh, for for and Salinas was chosen for a couple reasons and I uh, you know in a, in a former life I also used to besides being an ag guy I was also the mayor of Salinas and you know so around our community there's been a real focus around agriculture and technology and innovation and and that's just you know, across the board that, uh, you, you know, in this, in this day and age and, uh, you know, given the changing nature of the market, you know, I think, uh, you know, Western growers, the, the grower shippers and the processors have been re- routinely innovating. Um, but, uh, you know, Salinas, uh, in terms of an ecosystem had some early momentum and, and in large part because, uh, you know, we have immediate contiguity to the Silicon Valley, you know, and for all intents and purposes, you know, Salinas is now the, you know, kind of the fresh southern flank of the Silicon Valley, you know, the way the, the, the valley continues to grow and sprawl. And then uh, at the time, uh, Bruce Taylor was the chairman of WGA, and uh, and so we're housed in the new Taylor Farm, now a couple years old, but that's new, the uh, new Taylor uh, Farms uh, corporate headquarters. And so, uh, but Salinas made a lot of sense uh, to uh, get started with a physical location where we could, Pursue new, I, you know, address our um, industry concerns at the time. Kind of the macros were food safety. Uh, we knew labor was going to continue to be a challenge, and then obviously uh, throughout the country, there's a lot of concern about water as it relates to quality and supply. And really, you know, the whole water issue is really kind of represents the fact that we all know we're going to have to do more with less. And so the tools and elements of precision ag really really kind of gather around, uh, you know, resource management. And uh, so with that in mind, uh, the center opened a couple of years ago. We, we started out with six companies. Uh, we're a couple of years down the road, and uh, we I think our high watermark, we were 53 to 55 companies. And, you know, we're, when you're working with young young companies, you know, that's kind of a dynamic game, not a static game. Some are, some are growing and some are not. And uh, uh, But so the idea was to... Uh, uh, to have a place that companies who wanted market access could test technology, get direct feedback from growers. And at times, uh, you know, a lot of the growers, uh, are also investors in the company. So, mm-hmm. so the, the basic idea is to really begin to directly connect the world of ag and technology together more closely. And the, and the reason that's important, as I alluded to earlier, uh, I think, I think agriculture uh, you know, routinely innovates and, uh, there are a lot of terrific things going on, but, you know, the nature of the things that we have to do to continue to be competitive, meet the challenges in the, fir- in the future are going to be increasingly more technical. So I think the, the feeling was, and I certainly agree and support that, that we needed to make connections with new worlds. You, you know, if we just had a, uh, sure. session in, uh, central California. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask um, uh, just a clarifying question here, Dennis. So essentially, the Innovation Center is acting as the middleman to connect startups with, like, growers in your membership organization? Or So, like, would you say it's like a startup has an idea and it's looking for a grower to connect with to, like, use their produce? Or is it kind of more of the reverse? 
Well, the center, the, the companies we, we deal with, and I, and I like the fact we've chosen to be an innovation center. We're, we, we're not a accelerator or incubator per se, though we can provide that type of, type of support. The, the companies that come in here are often, are often startups. Uh, at a minimum, they have to be a company. And they have to, at a minimum, have to have a have a prototype. So we're not we're in favor of ideas, but ideas have to have a little more maturation uh, before we'll we'll get involved with them. And we've also turned out to be kind of a landing landing pad for uh, companies in other parts of the world uh, who have developed technology, who uh, perhaps have revenue streams in other other countries. You know, a couple. I'll just cite a couple of examples. There are a lot of young Israeli com- companies, New Zealand companies who make our membership where they're, they're companies with, with revenue streams and they're looking for uh, market access that California provides because they need an opportunity to scale. You, gotcha. you know, you're simply not going to scale technology in places like New Zealand and Israel as terrific as they are. So we're also a good, good point of contact. So, you know, our fundamental uh, value proposition is market access, uh, to the special, you know, to the, to the major specialty crop growers. And then, and then from there, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have an engagement process and review process. Uh, you know, companies come, you know, in all shapes and sizes and various degrees of funding and, uh, uh, some really just don't know the ag world at all and they need some introductions to get started. Some uh, might be somewhat conversant with the ag world, and they want to expand their pool relationships. So uh, uh, there, there's no one answer. And so, for instance, uh, we we're cheering for all the accelerators and incubators because, you know, ultimately, if you look at the, um, you know, California and Arizona, you know, met many of the major uh, customers and possible co-investors that. Uh, that uh, folks are pursuing are, are Western grower members. So, you know, so I think our job is really uh, to, to, you know, organize and create alignment around industry access for uh, uh, folk, folks on the technology side. And then, and then we do try and work strategically, as I said, you know, you know, the food safety issue has been ongoing uh, in our industry. You know, when I first got in the industry in the late eighties, I mean, food safety is, uh, uh, you know, in the late 80s, it was all about pesticides, and uh, you know, as the, and you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the um, uh, the processing industry, and then as that industry got m- more mature, a lot of it was about uh, uh, issues that uh, you know from processing plants, and and then we're still really kind of in the area era of uh, um, pathogens in the field and and all that that entails, and so um, so food safety has been ongoing and 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 continuing and. Uh, the big, the big shift I point out to people is, you know, there's always, and I'm sure it's the same in, in your part of the world. Innovation mm-hmm. is nothing new uh, to agriculture. Uh, and if you look at our, and I'll just speak to the Salinas Alley, which is the one I'm the, the most familiar with, uh, we we have always been leaders in post-harvest innovation. And you know, the working assumption is you'll have available. Um, um, labor and resources and so the a lot of the innovation focus has been on product quality and uh so for instance 30 years ago every box of lettuce that went out of here was a single head of lettuce 
Uh, now, if you go to a grocery store, look at all the different ways you can get to package salad, or if you look at broccoli or cauliflower or tomatoes, you know, the value added revolution, uh, the innovation has been around product quality, um, and product, uh, products themselves. And now you're seeing a hard shift towards, uh, the production side of agriculture because that's where the challenges and the needs are. And so Absolutely. that's, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where the, so, so when you do that, you know, so I was going to mention we just had an event uh, at the, uh, in, uh, uh, Colinga, uh, at, uh, at a place we're awfully familiar with out here, Harris Ranch. And we had a, we had 150 plus folks attending and we were honored to have, uh, TJ Rogers, the uh, founder of Cypress Semiconductor as our keynote speaker. And, you know, if you, Talk to ag guys, you know, I think we can talk to you a lot about we know how to grow spinach, but when you start talking about deep machine learning and artificial intelligence, that's not what we do. And so we've really got to get those worlds together in a very specific, uh, economically viable fashion to address problems in the future. It's, you know, it's yeah. no longer a question of how do we shift from top ice into vacuum cooling. Yeah, absolutely. Dennis, well, we certainly appreciate your insight into some of the technologies and developments going on in the western part of the United States. Thanks so much. Oh, well, no, thanks for your for your interest. And uh, we uh, uh, and one of the things I'll just close with uh, is, you know, I think more and more uh, your part of the world and our part of the world are going to be um, getting together on some of some of these challenges. So uh, we we uh, and we're and I think we'll enjoy that process. You know, the one thing about technology is it needs to scale. So uh, I suspect that the special crop industry in the Midwest will be spending a little more time together. Again, that was Dennis Donahue with the Western Growers Association. And it's always great to see, you know, these companies bringing together technology and innovation for the future of agriculture. What do you guys think? It definitely is, and it's interesting to see that they represent such a large group of specialty, or I guess to us it's specialty, but to them it's just normal crop production. Yeah, you know, it all uh, it all depends on where you're from. And speaking of technology and growth and et cetera, folks, you can still get onto our Twitter and Facebook page at Ag News Daily and vote. Help us select a new name for our podcast network. Right now, the Global Ag Network is leading, but yes. TELUS Network is the other choice to get on there and cast a vote. Or, Delaney, where should they go to hear all of our past podcasts? Absolutely. You can always find the past podcasts in any podcast directory, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Um, you can also just go to our website. That's probably the easiest. If you head to agnewsdaily.com, you can also find a contact us form there if you want to cast your vote but aren't on social media. But that guy, should we let the people go? Let's, Let's let, let them go. go.